A major two-factor app has been acquired. Google wants to add DRM to the web, a backdoor in a major communications protocol, a serious CPU vulnerability, and much more. Busy week. Welcome to Surveillance Report 144, where we are dedicated to keeping you private and secure with the latest news from the past week. I am Nathan from The New Oil. And I'm Henry from TechLore. Our promo segment, as usual... We have Patreon. If you want to ask us a question, that is $5 a month or more. If you want to listen to a longer version of this podcast where you don't have to put up with this promo spot and you get more of our thoughts, analysis, things of that nature, that is $10 a month or more. We're very grateful to all of our patrons. We also have LibrePay. If you don't care about any of the perks and you want something that's slightly more privacy respecting, LibrePay is an option. And of course, if you are looking for the maximum amount of privacy and anonymity, but still want to support the podcast, we have Monero, which is a cryptocurrency currency. Thank you guys so much for all your support and keeping us going. So I'm going to take the highlight story again this week, mainly because I've been uh, keeping a little bit closer of an eye on this. Apparently we don't have a headline, but Rivo OTP, which is possibly a formerly well-recommended two-factor app for iOS has been acquired. And this whole acquisition has not gone well. The closest we got to an official announcement, quote unquote official, was a tweet And friendly reminder, that is a closed platform now where you cannot see posts without an account. I don't know. Like, I I guess you can with certain knitter front ends or stuff like that. But I I have not to this day. I still have not seen this post for myself. So first there was that post. And then we have the post that we're actually linking, which is a GitHub post where basically someone figured it out, probably from looking at the app information, because the app has already been updated to this new company. And the post was closed and the developer was basically like, hey, we'll we'll post an official announcement soon. That was, God, almost. I'm going from memory here, but it was almost a week ago at the time of recording. It might even be a week by the time this comes out. It's been several days. The company who has acquired Rivo has a lot of red flags. For example, they're a holding company for several different apps, which don't necessarily seem related. One of them is an iPhone cleaner, which you don't really need. One of them is a VPN which has like no information. All of the apps point to the same generic privacy policy from this company. And so far, nobody that I'm aware of has been able to find any publicly visible information about this company. Like we don't know where they're based out of. We don't know who's behind them. The closest we've got is one of the guys from Privacy Guides found that the domain was registered in 2020. We don't know anything about this company. Furthermore, at the time of this publication, Rivo has not responded to requests for comment. Privacy Guides has contacted them. The New Oil has contacted them. Again, there was this post. Privacy Guides had a thread on their forum. For audio listeners, I misspoke. That was actually a GitHub issue, which is now linked in the show notes. Video viewers, of course, you can see that correction on the screen right now. Where somebody talked about this, and again, the developer gave like a really non-answer answer where he was like, hey, I'm sorry, I haven't communicated well. Just remember, it's just one person at the helm behind Rivo. The closest he came to addressing any of the questions was some confusing response about like, the privacy policy for Rivo is going to stay in place until it's not anymore. That's basically what he said. It's very confusing. The whole thing is very confusing. There hasn't been a lot of communication. At this time, technically, we can't conclusively say don't use Rivo. Like, nothing bad has technically happened. It's still source available. They haven't changed anything or pushed out any updates. We don't really know anything about the company, so we can't say for sure that something is wrong. But that said, this is definitely not a good look. This was not handled very well. And unfortunately, I'm predicting, along with many other people, this is probably just step one on a downward path. 
Privacy Guides has already delisted them. I'm going to be keeping a really close eye on this situation. If you don't want to leave Rivo yet, that's fine, but you should probably start planning your exit strategy. You should back up your seeds in case that functionality goes first with the next update. Yeah, that said, just real quick, if anybody has any suggested recommendations, I think that's all my notes. You got anything to add? Not too much. It's unfortunate because even on the Techler site, this was the main recommendation as well for iOS. By the way, this is iOS. I'm already seeing like 50 people go, just use Aegis. And it's like, guys, this is an iOS authenticator. Like we, we like and both recommend Aegis as well, but it's for only one platform. So there's other platforms that exist that aren't your phone. It's a bummer, but this is why both of us recommend only products that allow you to back up and export your seeds. Because when things like this happen, you can move to something else. And that's why that's such an important functionality. Uh, well, we're going to go into the data breaches. We're going to start with the Chinese video chat service, Taigo, which had 100 million records across 300 gigabytes exposed earlier this year. This is from Have I Been Pwned? And it's pretty much a new breach. Again, pretty much the title. And it, the data contained over 700,000 unique names, usernames, emails, and IP addresses, genders, profile photos, and private messages. 9% were already in Have I Been Pwned? So this should continue to be unfolding as we speak. All right, our next breach comes from Breach Forums, sort of. Their database and private chats are now for sale in a data breach. Yesterday, which is July 26th when this article was written, the Have I Been Pwned data breach notification service announced that visitors can check their information if their information was exposed in a data breach of the breached cybercrime forum. The breach exposed 212,000 records, including usernames, IP and email addresses, private messages between site members and passwords stored as Argon2 hashes. Breach database is currently being sold by a threat actor going by the name breached underscore DB underscore person who told Bleeping Computer they shared the database with Have I Been Pwned to prove its authenticity to potential buyers. Bleeping Computer was told that the database is two gigs and contains all tables, including those for private messages, payments, transactions, and member databases. The seller also told Bleeping Computer that the private message tables have a lot of incriminating information about forum members and that members database contains IP addresses showing that many threat actors do not follow good operational security by using residential IP addresses. For those who don't know, Breach Forums was a data breach sell website. It's late where I am, I can't talk. But yeah, they, they got shut down earlier this year, I think. All right, next breach. Over 400,000 corporate credentials were stolen by info-stealing malware. The analysis of nearly 20 million information-stealing malware logs sold on the dark web and Telegram channels revealed that they had achieved significant infiltration into business environments. Stealer logs are basically data stolen via malware and includes things like login credentials, keys, and bank numbers. While information stealers primarily target careless internet users who download software, such as cracks, whereas game cheats, and fake software from dubious sources, it has also been found to have a massive impact on corporate corporate environments. As cybersecurity firm Flare explains in a new report, there are approximately 375,000 logs containing access to business applications such as Salesforce, HubSpot, QuickBooks, AWS, GCP, Okta, and DocuSign. Additionally, public telegram channels may deliberately post lower value logs, saving high value logs for paying customers. Our next headline says 8 million people hit by data breach at US government contractor Maximus. It could actually be as many as 11 million people according to this article, and this does come from the Move It breach. Maximus is a contractor that manages and administers US government sponsored programs, including federal and local healthcare programs and student loan servicing. The company employs 34,300 people and has an annual revenue of about $4.25 billion with a presence in the US, Canada, Australia, and the UK. Based on the review of impacted files to date, Maximus believes those files contain personal information, including social security numbers, protected health information, and or other personal information. That's about all we've got at this time. 
As usual, these companies are pretty tight-lipped, but we'll keep you updated in the event that we hear any more. NATO investigates alleged data theft by sieged SEC hackers. The COI Corporation Portal is the military alliance's unclassified information sharing and collaboration environment dedicated to supporting NATO and member nations. Yesterday, which was July 25th at the time that this was written, the hacking group sieged SEC posted on Telegram what they claimed to be hundreds of documents stolen from the COI Corporation Portal. 8,000 rows of user-related sensitive information, unclassified documents, and user account access details. The details found in the leaked data include full name, company unit, working group, job titles, business and email IDs, residence addresses, photos, and it impacts 31 nations that are NATO members. So pretty interesting development there for something that's pretty high up. And our last story isn't so much a data breach per se, but it is very directly related. So we're going to go ahead and share it here. Klopp is now leaking data stolen in the movement attacks on clear websites. Quoting the article here, ransom data leak sites are usually located on the Tor network as it makes it harder for the website to be taken down or for law enforcement to seize the infrastructure. However, this hosting method comes with its own issues for the operators as a specialized Tor browser is required to access the site, search engines do not index leaked data, and the download speeds are typically very slow. To overcome these obstacles, last year the Alpha Ransomware Operation, also known as Black Cat, introduced a new extortion tactic of creating clear websites to leak stolen data that were promoted as a way for employees to check if their data was leaked. That's basically it. Klopp has now adopted this tactic, so... Now we're going to go into the companies. Google wants to kill open web under the guise of making it safer. So a group of Google engineers have proposed an API called Web Environment Integrity, which its stated goal is to make the web safer by letting websites verify that the devices and apps that visit them are safe and genuine in such a way so as not to facilitate fingerprinting and infringe on users' privacy. In short, with this API, when you visit a site, the website can ask a third party, called an attester, to prove that your device or application is real and trustworthy, so you're not a bot or anything like that. To do this, the attester sends a special code called a token that describes your device in a low entropy way, meaning with basic information, to the website. The website then inspects the token's payload to see if it has any security problems or has been modified in any ways. As for who can be an attester, the proposal says that the attester can come from the operating system, presumably a developer or vendor, but this is not yet set in stone. They also say that different operating systems can use the same attester, so in theory, the attester could be Windows or even Google itself. When you visit a website, your browser or extension can modify the website's code, for instance, to protect your privacy. Like DuckDuckGo and AdGuard modify the code to stop websites from tracking you or showing you ads. The AdGuard browser extension in particular may change website code to block ads and trackers, spyware, adware, and adblock circumvention scripts, depending on your configuration. So uh, I guess the questions and some of the things that people are asking is what happens if websites are armed with this new API? They'll be able to detect if you're running DuckDuckGo, AdGuard, or any other web browser app or plugin they don't like and block you from accessing the content. So for you people who are trying to block YouTube ads, this could give in theory, a way for YouTube to analyze what you're doing. On top of this, implementing this API can hamstring not only privacy protection tools, but password managers, translation tools, video players, and in general, any tools that may change the layout of a website. This can turn into a huge portion of the internet into a walled garden, accessible to only certain whitelisted applications. And this is cited as being a, quote, big concern. On some good news from Google, Android will now warn you about unknown Bluetooth trackers such as AirTags traveling with you. 
We covered this a while ago, and now it is officially rolling out. So for those of us who are just joining us, Google today, July 27th, will begin rolling out a new safety feature, Unknown Tracker Alerts, first announced at its developer event, Google I.O., this spring. The feature will allow Android users to be alerted automatically if an unknown Bluetooth device is traveling with them, a sign that could point to the possibility that someone is stalking them using an Apple AirTag or other Bluetooth tracking device. Users will also be able to manually scan for trackers with their Android device and be guided through tips on what to do next if a tracker is found. As this new alert feature rolls out, Android users will receive a notification on their device if an unknown tracker is separated from its owner as it is determined to be with you. Users will then be able to tap on the notification to view a map of where the tracker was seen traveling with you. You'll also be able to play a sound to have the tracker make a noise, allowing you to locate the device. If the device is found, users can bring it near the back of their phone to get more information. Some devices will share their serial number or ad additional information about the owner, like the last four digits of their phone number when held near the phone. You'll also be presented with tips on how to disable Bluetooth devices completely so the owner can no longer track you and receive future updates from the tracker. Also announced at IO 2023, Google said that it would update its Find My Device network to help users locate other missing belongings like headphones, phones, and everyday items, luggage keys, which can be located by third-party Bluetooth tracker tags. It explained users would be able to locate devices by ringing them or viewing their location on a map, even if they're offline, adding that it would support trackers from Tile, Chipolo, and Pebblebee, as well as audio devices like Pixel Buds and headphones from Sony and JBL. Today, however, Google says that update is on hold. Google has now an enhanced safe browsing feature. Should you use it? There is a bias warning. They end up praising tech dictatorships, so just a little grain of salt moment. But either way, the story, Google says that if you turn on enhanced safe browsing that's available for Chrome and Gmail, the company will take extra steps to warn you when you roam onto suspected scammer websites. With this safe browsing mode, Google monitors the web addresses of sites that you visit and compares them to constantly updated Google databases of suspected spam websites. You can also check when you're downloading a file to see if Google believes it might be a scam document. In the normal mode, without enhanced safe browsing, Google still does many of those same security checks, but the company might miss some of the rapid-fire activity of crooks who can create a fresh bogus website minutes after another one is blocked as spam. The downsides here are that the company already knows plenty about you, particularly when you're logged into Gmail, YouTube, Chrome, or other Google services. And if you turn this on, Google may know even more about what websites you're visiting, even if you're not signed into a Google account. It also collects bits of visual images from sites you're visiting to scan for hallmark of scam websites. Google said it will only use this information to stop bad guys and train its computers to improve security for you and everyone else. Okay, the next story is real quick. It says, Apple says new App Store API rules will limit user fingerprinting. Starting this fall, Apple has announced the developers will be required to provide a reason for using certain APIs that can collect information from their app's users. According to the company, this change to the API rules ensures developers don't abuse APIs for user fingerprinting. That's kind of all the relevant parts of the article. They didn't really go into detail about anything else. So Microsoft has enhanced Windows 11 phishing protection with some new features. And so these new features that they're testing is that they're warning users when they copy and paste their Windows password into websites and documents. This seems mainly aimed to protect against phishing for active directory customers, AKA businesses, which seems to be a widespread problem that's impacting them. This feature is not enabled by default. The article makes it sound like it will warn you every time you copy and paste your password, but the setting seems to suggest it will only do so on suspicious apps. Finally, it must be noted that the Windows 11 phishing protection feature does not work if you use Windows Hello, such as PIN or biometrics to log into Windows. For this feature to work, Windows users must log in with a password so it is cached in memory and can be compared to inputted text, typed or copied and pasted. All right, with that, we'll move into the research section. We're gonna start with a big vulnerability called Zenbleed, 
which leaks sensitive data from AMD Zen 2 processors. A Google security researcher discovered a new vulnerability, which could allow malicious actors to steal sensitive data, such as passwords and encryption keys from each CPU core. And the article goes on to give a lot more detail about how the exploit works. So if you are interested in the nitty gritty, feel free to go check that out. After triggering an opt optimized exploit for the flaw, the researcher could leak sensitive data from any system operation, including those that take place in a virtual machine, isolated sandbox, containers, etc. The exploit is written for Linux, but the bug is OS agnostic, so all operating systems running on Zen 2 CPUs are affected. This impacts all AMD CPUs built on Zen 2 architecture, including the Ryzen 3000, the Ryzen 4000 UH, the Ryzen 5000U, the Ryzen 7020, and the high-end Threadripper 3000 and Epic server processors. If your CPU is impacted, it is recommended to apply AMD's new microcode update or wait for your computer vendor to incorporate this fix in future BIOS upgrades. Unfortunately, another article notes that this fix could take months to roll out for some users, like the rest of the year kind of months. So be careful out there. And it sounds like this is something that could potentially be remotely executable. They really didn't give a lot of details on like what conditions it would work under, at least none written in plain English that I understood. So I apologize if that isn't there, but if you're affected by this, be on guard. This next one's really interesting. So code, like programming code, was kept secret for years. It reveals its flaws, which was a backdoor. So for more than 25 years, a tech used for critical data and voice radio communications around the world was shrouded in secrecy to prevent anyone from closely scrutinizing its security practices for vulnerabilities. But now things have changed because a small group of researchers in the Netherlands got their hands on it and found some serious flaws, including a deliberate backdoor. So this backdoor was known for years by vendors that sold the technology, but not by its customers. And it exists in an encryption algorithm baked into radios sold for commercial use in critical infrastructure. It's used to transmit encrypted data and commands in pipelines, railways, the electric grid, mass transportation, and freight trains. Freight trains. <laughs> it would allow someone to snoop on communications to learn how a system works, then potentially send commands to the radios that could trigger blackouts, halt gas pipeline flows, or reroute trains. They found a second vulnerability in a different part of the same radio tech that is used in more specialized systems sold exclusively to police forces, prison personnel, military, intelligence agencies, and emergency services, such as the C-2000 communication system used by Dutch police, fire brigades, ambulance services, and Ministry of Defense for mission-critical voice and data communications. The flaw would let someone decrypt encrypted voice and data communications and send fraudulent messages to spread misinformation or redirect personnel and forces during critical times. They found uh, five in total vulnerabilities in a European radio standard called Tetra, which is used in radios made by Motorola, DAMM, and Hetera, and others. Um, the standard's been around since the 90s, but the flaw remained unknown because encryption algorithms used in Tetra were kept secret until now. They actually discovered these back in 2021, but agreed not to disclose them publicly until I assumed they were fixed. Not all the issues can be fixed with a patch, and it's not clear which manufacturers have prepared them for customers. Motorola, one of the largest radio vendors, didn't respond to repeated inquiries from Wired. The article gives significantly more background to Tetra's history, how the researchers extracted the algorithm, and its recent history in surveillance. So if you want more information, definitely check out the sources that are in the description. Our last research story is about a stalkerware called SpyHide, which is spying on tens of thousands of phones. Switzerland-based hacker, uh, I'm not even gonna pronounce 
attempt to pronounce that name, I apologize, said in a blog post that the spyware maker exposed a portion of its development environment, allowing access to the source code of the web-based dashboard that abusers use to view the stolen phone data of their victims. By exploiting a vulnerability in the dashboard's shoddy code, the researcher was able to gain access to the backend database and expose the inner workings of the secretive spyware operations and its suspected administrators. SpyHide's database contained detailed records of about 60,000 compromised Android devices, dating back to 2016 up to the date of exfiltration in mid-July. This included call logs, text messages, and precise location history dating back years, as well as information about each file, such as when a photo or video was taken and uploaded, and when calls were recorded and for how long. TechCrunch fed close to 2 million location data points into an offline geospatial and mapping software, allowing us to visualize and understand the spyware's global reach. Our analysis shows SpyHide's surveillance network spans every continent with clusters of thousands of victims in Europe and Brazil. The U.S. had more than 3,100 compromised devices, a fraction of the total number worldwide. One U.S. device that was compromised had quietly uploaded more than 100,000 location data points. It's pretty wild. SpyHide's database also contained records on 750,000 users who signed up with the intention of planting the malware on a victim's device. While most of the compromised Android devices were controlled by a single user, our analysis showed that more than 4,000 users were in control of more than one compromised device. A smaller number of user accounts were in control of dozens of compromised devices. The data also included 3.29 million text messages containing highly personal information, such as 2FA codes, password reset links, more than 1.2 million call logs containing the phone numbers of the receiver and the length of the call plus about 312,000 recording call, call recording files, more than 925,000 contact lists containing names and phone numbers, records for 382,000 photos and images. The data also had details on close to 6,000 ambient recordings stealthily recorded from the microphone on the victim's phone. And then the article just goes on to talk about how spyware apps are often disguised to look like normal looking Android apps or processing, so finding them can be tricky. This particular one would disguise itself either as Google settings or a ringtone app called T Ringtone. Both apps request permission and you can check your apps in the settings. Although be aware that if you remove the app, then the person who planted it there will be aware of that. So it's a tricky situation for the victims. And TechCrunch has a general guide about how to remove the spyware, but Again, a tricky situation, so yeah. Now we're gonna go into the politics section. And so the first story is that an FBI analyst improperly searched surveillance data for US senator's name. So this is a newly declassified court document, which shows that an FBI analyst conducted four searches of information collected under the warrantless surveillance program using the last names of a U.S. senator and a state senator. In both cases, the analyst had information showing that the two lawmakers were being targeted by a foreign intelligence service. A senior FBI official stressed that none of these individuals were surveilled, and the FBI did not collect any information on them in response to the search. The analyst ran an unapproved search against our databases to retrieve any information that was already lawfully collected, the official said. But the database searches nonetheless violated the FBI's own policy on multiple fronts, according to the court documents. So the analyst in question, whom the court did not name, failed to get pre-approval from the deputy director that is required for searches that use sensitive query terms, such as the names of public officials or candidates. More broadly, the analyst's searches did not fully meet the FBI's search standards that it considers when determining if a search is likely to retrieve foreign intelligence information or evidence of a crime. The senior FBI official, during a press call Friday afternoon after the opinion was released, said that while the searches did meet two of the three components the FBI considers, it didn't meet a third component requiring that the search also be reasonably tailored to do so without unnecessarily retrieving other surveillance collected data. The senior FBI official added that if the analyst queries had been sent for pre-approval in accordance with the policy, they would not have been approved. 
In addition, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court opinion released on Friday disclosed that the FBI conducted an improper search for a state judge via that person's social security number in the surveillance database, which took place in October. It also isn't the first time the court has disclosed that an FBI analyst improperly searched warrantless surveillance data for a member of Congress. A good quote here, the surveillance court's ruling notes more broadly that despite the improper search in 2022, there is reason to believe that the FBI has been doing a better job adhering to its own rules for using warrantless surveillance. Among the FBI's reforms noted by the court, requiring additional documentation of search compliance, changing internal search settings, requiring additional approval for batch queries, additional mandatory and annual training, and additional review of searches, FBI Director Christopher Wray has also touted the creation of an Office of Internal Audit that he said is focused specifically on warrantless surveillance. Our next story is about the SEC, the, uh, what is that, Security and Exchange Commission? Oh, it's yeah, right there. Securities and Exchange Commission, who is now requiring companies to disclose cyber attacks in four days. They have adopted new rules requiring companies to disclose cyber attacks within four business days after determining their material incidents. According to the Wall Street Watchdog, material incidents are those that a public company's shareholders would consider important in making an investment decision. The SEC also adopted new regulations mandating foreign private issuers to provide equivalent disclosures following cybersecurity breaches. Listed companies must now include details about the cyber attack, including the incident's nature, scope, and timing in periodic report filings, specifically on an 8K form. These new cybersecurity incident reporting rules are set to take effect in December or 30 days after being published in the Federal Register. However, small companies will be granted an additional 180 days before they are required to provide Form 8K disclosures. In some instances, the disclosure timeline may also be postponed if the U.S. Attorney General determines that an immediate disclosure would pose a significant risk to national security or public safety. They require the disclosure of the following breach-related information, provided it is available at the time of the filing. The date of discovery and status of the incident, ongoing or resolved, a concise description of the incident's nature and extent, any data that may have been compromised, altered, accessed, or used without authorization, the impact of the incident on the company's operations, information about ongoing or completed remediation efforts by the company. However, affected companies are not expected to disclose technical specifics of their incident response plans or details about potential vulnerabilities that might influence the response or remediation actions. Senate panel advances bills to child-proof the internet. KOSA is supposed to establish a new legal standard for the FTC and state attorneys general, allowing them to police companies that fail to prevent kids from seeing harmful content on their platforms. The author of the bills have said the bill keeps kids from seeing content that glamorizes eating disorders, suicidal thoughts, substance abuse, and gambling. It would also ban kids 13 and under from using social media and require companies to acquire parental consent before allowing children under 17 to use their platforms. This is essentially meaningless if the very nature of the bill requires online services to treat minors differently from adult users. Doing so would require online services to know the ages of their users, adults and children alike, which was said by uh, Alaya Batia, a policy analyst at the Center of Democracy and Technology. Digital rights advocates have also suggested that KOSA could prevent LGBTQ plus teens from finding the resources they may need online without coming out to their parents due to the parental consent requirements of the bill. The other bill lawmakers approved COPPA 2.0, raises the age of protection under the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act from 13 to 16 years of age, along with similar age-gating restrictions. It also bans platforms from targeting ads to kids. Our next story comes from the EFF. It says the Maryland Supreme Court police can't search digital data when users revoke consent. Under the Fourth Amendment, police can search your home, your computer, and other private spaces without a warrant or even probable cause if you freely and voluntarily consent to the search. But even when someone consents to a search, they should be able to change their mind. 
Say, for example, if a lawyer gives them better advice. But as a recent case from the Maryland Supreme Court demonstrates, searches of digital data stored in electronic devices raises unique questions about consent. If you consent to a search of your computer and police make a copy of the data on the computer, can they still examine that copy if you withdraw your consent? In State v. McDonald, the Maryland Supreme Court sensibly answered no. In June 2019, police officers visited Mr. McDonald's home and requested to search his home computer and phone as part of their investigation into the distribution of child sexual abuse material. Mr. McDonald signed a consent form allowing the agents to search his home and seize his phone and computer. The form included a clause stating that, quote, I understand that I may withdraw my consent at any time, unquote. After McDonald's electronics had been seized and their contents copied, but before the contents had been examined, McDonald's lawyer sent an email withdrawing consent to the seizure of Mr. McDonald's laptop and or examination of its contents. But agents searched the contents of the computer anyways, and McDonald has moved to suppress the evidence that came from the search. Maryland Supreme Court unanimously agreed with McDonald, holding that because Mr. McDonald withdrew his consent before the government examined the data, he did not lose his reasonable expectation of privacy in the data and that the government's search violated the Fourth Amendment. Notably, the court found that McDonald had a, quote, privacy interest in the data itself, unquote, even though he had legally lost a possessory interest in the copy by consenting to the copying. So that kind of just lays the groundwork for future defense of digital data. This is like the second story we've covered like this, where it's really unfortunate that somebody who, from the sound of this story, somebody who was up to no good is getting away with something. And that's really, really unfortunate. And obviously we're not fans of that, but it is good to see a win for privacy and this legal precedent be set. So it's a shame that we keep needing these like problematic examples, to put it very politely, these problematic situations to set that kind of precedent but i guess it's a, an overall win for privacy that the courts are standing up for that so i'm always conflicted on these kind of stories the movement to limit facial recognition technology might finally get a win so just four years ago the movement to ban police departments from using facial recognition in the u.s was riding high by the end of 2020, around 18 cities had pretty much forbidden the police from adopting the technology. U.S. lawmakers proposed a pause on the federal government's use of the tech. In the years since, that effort has slowed to a halt. Five municipal bans on police and government use passed in 2021, but none in 2022 or in 2023 so far, according to a database from the digital rights group Fight for the Future. Some local bans have even been partially repealed, and today, few seriously believe that a federal ban on police use of facial recognition could pass in the foreseeable future. In the meantime, without legal limits on its use, the technology has only grown more ingrained in people's day-to-day -day lives. However, in Massachusetts, there is hope for those who want to restrict police access to face recognition. The state's lawmakers are currently thrashing out a bipartisan state bill that seeks to limit police use of the technology. It's not a full ban, but it would mean that only state police could use it, not all law enforcement. Right now in the U.S., regulations on police use of facial recognition are trapped in political gridlock. If a leader like Massachusetts can pass its bill, that could usher in a new age of compromise. It would be one of the strictest pieces of statewide legislation in the country, and it could set the standard for how face recognition is regulated elsewhere. On the other hand, if a vote is delayed or fails, it would be yet another sign that the movement is waning as the country moves on to other policy issues. Okay, our next story, I'm going to try to withhold my personal opinions, but note that, as you can tell from the headline, this article comes with a bias. The headline says, Conservative group headed by 2020 presidential election denier wins access to Illinois voter data in court settlement. Quoting the article, A conservative group headed by a 2020 presidential election denier will get access to an unredacted list of Illinois voters and their personal information, such as mail and email address and telephone number, under a federal court settlement with the State Board of Elections. The conservative union and its founder, Carol Davis, 
has filed a federal challenge to the state election board's limitation that provided complete voter data only to political committees and government entities. Under a previous judicial ruling, individual voter data that greatly redacted personal information has been available to the public. Due to concerns over wider dissemination of the personal data, the settlement with the Illinois Conservative Union allows the group to get the unredacted list only through the end of 2026. The group has 60 days after that date to destroy the voter list and personal information it obtained. My personal question that never gets answered in this article is why did she want this data? And furthermore, why are, are people getting different sets of data? So they talk about like publicly available data. And I wonder if they're talking about like, in case you guys didn't know this, in the US, in most every state, as far as I'm aware, you can go online to your local voter registration place and look up anybody. And it'll tell you a lot about them, usually. So is that what they were talking about when they said greatly redacted personal information? And if that's the case, why couldn't she? Because you can just go down there and buy for like pennies, less than pennies for records. You can buy a whole set of like voter data that tells you people's addresses, names, phone numbers. And the whole reason they have this is say I live in a neighborhood where there's a park down the road and they wanna destroy the park and put up high rise apartments. I can get a list of everyone in that zip code who's a registered voter and then go to their houses and be like, hey, will you sign my petition? Like that's the whole reason they have this. So I, I guess I'm just really confused. Like why wasn't she allowed to get this data in the first place? What did she want to use it for? Next story is from a cryptocurrency called WorldCoin, which is being probed by French privacy regulator for questionable practices. So a CNL spokesperson said in a written statement, the legality of this data collection seems questionable, as do the conditions for preservation of biometric data, which refers to their practice of scanning retinas to ensure that no single person can claim crypto rewards twice. They've initiated an investigation supporting the work of Bavarian privacy regulators who have primary responsibility under EU law. WorldCoin went live on Monday, and its cheerleaders say it could spread crypto wider than Bitcoin. But it has drawn criticism from privacy watchdogs in the UK, where the Information Commissioner's Office has warned that people must freely give consent to the processing of their personal data and be able to withdraw it without detriment. Our next story comes from Australia. It says Meta subsidiaries ordered to pay $20 million to Australian government over misleading ads for security app. Two subsidiaries of Facebook owner Meta have been ordered to pay the Australian government $20 million for misleading customers by not adequately advising them a free security app was mining their data. And we talked about this one, the VPN app called Onavo Protect. It was on app stores on Android and Apple devices as a way to keep your data safe when you browse and share information on the web. But the ads did not make it clear that Meta was using it as a business intelligence tool, allowing it to know nearly everything users were doing on their mobile devices. The other subsidiary was Facebook Israel, and the article absolutely did not elaborate on what they're in trouble for or if they're related to this story, or I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, maybe they're the ones who own the VPN. And the last political story is from Russia, who is banning thousands of officials from using iPhones for work emails over spying fears. This new ban will take effect Monday, July 17th, and the move affects a variety of Apple products. And it builds off similar restrictions already put in place by the Digital Development Ministry and state-owned defense conglomerate Rostec. Kremlin officials also advise staff working on Vladimir Putin's 2024 presidential re-election campaign against using a variety of U.S.-developed smartphones over similar espionage conveners earlier this year. Officials could continue employing the devices for personal use, but those officials and staff, according to the Times, may wind up double-fisting multiple phones during daily routines simply to abide by the new rules. 
Others looking to avoid the hassle altogether could switch to a suite of inferior government-approved devices running on the Russian-made Aurora operating system. The FSB has long been concerned about the use of iPhones for professional contacts, but the presidential administration and other officials opposed restrictions simply because they liked iPhones. We'll move into FOSS, where we have bad news for Ubuntu users. Almost 40% of Ubuntu users are vulnerable to a new privilege escalation flaw. Flaws, excuse me. Two recent flaws discovered by researchers were recently introduced into the operating system, impacting roughly 40% of Ubuntu's user base. One is a high severity score, 7.8 in the kernel, which is caused by inadequate permissions check, allowing local attackers to gain elevated privileges. The other is medium severity, 5.4, and that is in the kernel's memory management subsystem, where a race condition when accessing VMAs may lead to use after free, allowing a local attacker to perform arbitrary code execution. The two analysts found the problems after discovering discrepancies in implementing the overlay FS module onto the Linux kernel. Once again, as we've Sometimes say the article goes into a lot more detail about how these or how these vulnerabilities came to be in the first place because of Ubuntu kind of like modifying parts of the kernel for their thing, which of course every distro does. And also more detail on how these work in general. So if you're, as always, if you're one of the techie people who wants to know all the details, they're in the article, in the description. It should be noted that the two highlighted flaws only impact Ubuntu and any other Linux distribution, including Ubuntu Forks, not using custom modifications of the overlay FS module should be safe. Ubuntu has a security bulletin about the issue and six more vulnerabilities addressed in the latest version of the kernel and has made fixing updates available. Users who don't know how to reinstall and activate third-party kernel modules are recommended to perform the update via their package manager, which should take care of all dependencies and post-install configurations. A reboot is required after installing the updates to take effect. So, And the last story of the week, because there's no misfits, so the last FOSS story of the week is from Mastodon, who has new merchandise. They're just doing this to raise some more funds for their development efforts, and they have a new artist, but they've come up with brand new exclusive designs for each item, including t-shirts, mugs, enamel pins, and stickers. They also partnered with Fresh Merch to manufacture these items from responsibly sourced materials to the highest degree of quality. And they just did the photo shoot, and they can expect products to be ready for sale in the next few weeks. To be notified when the store launches, you can subscribe to the mailing list below, or keep an eye out on our Mastodon on account. That's a quote. So when I say below, not down in our description, but in the article. They went with a conservative initial batch with only 250 items, uh, units of each item that will be available at launch. So they might sell out quick. So if you're interested in this, sign up for that newsletter and buy it quick. And that's all we got this week. So Rivo has been acquired. Again, technically there's nothing wrong with it right now, but this has certainly not been a great acquisition. So we'll keep you updated if we hear anything either way, whether good or bad. Google is wanting to add DRM to the web. That's also not good, but it's a little too early to say how that'll shake out. A backdoor in the major communications protocol, a serious CPU vulnerability for AMD users, and a lot more. And as always, we will try our best to keep you updated on all of that as we learn more. So make sure you are subscribed. Our promo segment, again, reminder, Patreon is probably the easiest way to support us. You get perks in return. $5 a month, you get to ask a question on our Q&A, which will drop a little bit later this week. $10 or more, you don't have to hear these promo segments, and you also get more of our analysis, our banter, etc., things like that. If you don't care about any of that and you just want to support us in a recurring fashion, LibrePay is probably a little bit more privacy respecting, just a little bit. Still uses Stripe and PayPal to process the payments, but at least they're cutting out all the Patreon stuff. And of course we have Monero if you want the maximum amount of privacy and anonymity. 
We see all of those contributions. We thank you guys so much for keeping us going. It really does make a difference. A lot of work goes into uploading these, editing these, and it really is hugely helpful to keep us going. So thank you guys for listening to Surveillance Report. The final thing we want to ask of you, as always, share the podcast around. If there's any specific stories you think someone you know might be interested in, go ahead and timestamp it, send it to them. Make sure you're subscribed so you can get those updates as we hear more stories next week. And give us a rating if you're on a platform where that's an option. We're trying to reach as many people as possible with the message of privacy. And every little thing you do helps us out with that. So thank you again for listening and we will see you next week.